All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy to prepare food order today 888-457-3453 888-457-3453 or go online at preparewithcr.com that's preparewithcr.com build your emergency food supply for only $99 limit two units per caller 888-457-3453 or online at preparewithcr.com that's 888-457-3453 or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV, and you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. We're underway here on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Going to have some fun here this first hour. Don't forget, though, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Later on tonight... Uh, conversation I'm really looking forward to. David A.R. White's going to join us. He's the founding partner of Pure Flix. If the name doesn't sound familiar, the face would. He's the guy who plays the campus pastor in the God's Not Dead movies. He's going to join us in hour two and talk about the role that his production company's been on with faith-based films the last couple of years, as well as his story. How did he go from being a kid growing up as a Mennonite in Dodge City, Kansas, literally Dodge City, Kansas, to now a guy who's helping to produce films that are making hundreds of millions of dollars. How did that happen? We'll get his story a little bit later on on the show here tonight. Also coming up uh, next hour on the show, one of, he doesn't know it, although I think maybe I've told him this once before. He's probably, though, forgotten it because he's ashamed to admit it. But a guy who's who's literally been like a mentor to me in some way, has 
his 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 work has had a huge impact on my own worldview, which means he at least gets some of the blame for what happens here each and every night. Not to mention he's got the greatest name for a for a blog on the internet. Blog and May blog is the name of Douglas Wilson's site, and he's going to join us uh, coming up in uh, the second hour of the show as well. We'll talk some theology and some philosophy with him. But but why are we doing this on Facebook Live tonight? Because you're not just hearing this on the air if you're listening to us on one of our live affiliates. Those of you that will listen on delay or on, on or on demand a little bit later on, you missed out. But if you're listening to us on one of our live affiliates, you can actually go and watch... Uh, us do the first hour of the show via Facebook Live this evening, because we're going to do one of our Facebook Live chats. We thought it might be fun to give it a shot. We're going to bring the Facebook Live chat onto the on-air show and bring the on-air show onto the Facebook Live chat. So earlier today, we asked you to post questions you would like us to get to in this opening hour of the program, and a lot of you have. And so we're going to get to as many questions about 2016 as we possibly can, and we'll answer them all as best as we can. Gentlemen, are you ready to go? Absolutely. It's going to be fun. All right, so I'm picking the questions this time only because Aaron was too busy with everything else. He didn't have time to. Uh, Nancy Rogers, let's begin with her question. She, sa- she says, every presidential election cycle, we hear people complaining the media picks the two major party nominees, the strongest Democrat, for example, versus the weakest Republican. Why then do the people keep allowing this to happen? Why do they keep falling for the most electable nonsense in the primaries instead of voting for the candidate that they really want? This is an excellent question to begin I have my own theory where this is concerned, but I'm actually going to let you guys tackle this one first. I think this one's pretty easy, actually, in, in my opinion, because uh, I, I think... Uh, I think it's, Well then, Mr. Fancy Pants, <laughs> dazzle us with your intellect, by all means. Well, I saw this earlier, and I thought... You ain't bad, you ain't nothing. I got this one, one half my brain tied behind my back. Prepare to be homeschooled. <laughs> uh, I think, I think the, the question to be asking is, why do we allow the media to actually do this, and why do we keep voting for the candidate that they choose? I think that's the question we need to be asking. And I think the answer is is that, uh, for the most part, we're uh, a nation and a people who are not, uh, at least we haven't shown ourselves, able to be uh, self-governable. We're not able to govern ourselves, uh, which includes things like putting time into um, discovering and uh, researching candidates that maybe even the media picks out. I, th- I think that's, that's the answer. Todd, I think he's dead on right, actually. So he was right. You know, as Babe Ruth once said, he ain't bragging if you can do it. He said, I got this, it's easy, and I thought he nailed it. I think it's just as simple as we are, as a people, we're not capable of self-government, by and large. A few, there's, there's a remnant of us that are capable, um, probably even a smaller remnant that's even willing. Uh, but uh, beyond that, I just think a lot of, Amer- of Americans want to be spoon-fed information. They want to be spoon-fed choices. They want to be spoon-fed decisions. You know, I, I get these emails a lot. I get these emails a lot. People asking me for my take on things, which I'm fine with because this is what we do full time. So we 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 should know more about it than the average person does. It's a little bit like, you know, um, I there's a buddy of mine that uh, is uh, the guy who runs the service department at the car lot where we bought all our cars the last few years. And I'm I go and I, I go and I ask him, you know, hey, I I I'm, I think something's wrong with my vehicle. This is what I'm hearing. Now, why do I do that? Because he knows more about it than I do. 
there's one thing, though, in seeking out consultation. There's another thing, though, in saying, hey, make my decision for me. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I do think there's just a lot of people in our day and age that want to be spoon-fed. And, and so I think they want the easy choice. And then, of course, it's the choice they usually end up regretting a little bit later on. Agreed. Another problem is we, all, we believe in the gospel of compromise far more than we believe in the gospel of truth. We will go out of our way to explain, well, this is this is the way the game is played. And we will not follow anything through to its end. Be either hot or cold. Be not lukewarm. Well, we constantly, has, and when I say we, I'm talking about Christians, keep saying, no, no, lukewarm is the, is, is the only way you can get something done. We do things that fly in the face of the claims we say we are making about ourselves and our final destiny, our purpose on this world. That center cannot hold, and so it doesn't. You know, we've often said in this show that self-government begins men with what? Self. Mm -hmm. Self Self-government begins with self. I mean, let's assume that we got somebody elected in November who was really serious about limited government. And and he stood up at his inaugural address in January and said, one of the first things i got to do here in a couple weeks is submit a budget. And I'm not submitting. I'm 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 not submitting anything that isn't constitutionally valid or pliable, and so you guys are going to kind of have to figure it out from there. Do you know how the average American would react to that? Forget a man, average American, average Republican, average conservative, they'd go nuts because how, I don't. How how dare you govern according to what we claim to actually yes. believe around here? We can't have that going on around here. We're we're in. I don't know what comes first. You know. But I do know this. You know, it's kind of the chicken or the egg argument. Does do you does do you need a moral people to have a limited government? To, you know, you know, um, is a limited government necessary to maintain a moral people? Because of course, if you have a big, large, decadent government which incentivizes big, decadent behaviors, what are people going to do? I, I mean, anytime you sub- an answer. Yes, yes. Anytime you incentivize or subsidize something, you get more of it, right? And anytime you tax something, you get less of it, right? So I think the question is the answer. Todd, you're correct. The answer is yes. I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, but the answer is, of course, yes. The reality is, though, that we have very. If, if we were a people capable of governing ourselves. Would the government be this big in the first place? No. No. I, w- I would maintain that, wouldn't you, Todd? If we, if we were truly, as a people, capable of governing ourselves, the government would not be as big as well, it is. Well, it wouldn't be necessary, A, but more importantly, we would refuse to allow it to happen on matters of principle. We refuse to. We rule ourselves. We refuse to be ruled in. Such it's a like the, it's like the column I have a conservative review today about political correctness run amok again. You know, another reminder that of the cult of progressivism, and and what's going on in our college campuses and on social media. And one of the things I I, I think I even closed the the article with that here today, which is, if we were capable of standing up to this, we wouldn't have allowed it in the first place. It wouldn't have gotten to the point where we were not even allowing it, but subsidizing it. If we were capable of saying no, of standing up to these snowflakes and saying, like Ivan Drago, I would break you. If we were capable of this, then we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be having this going on under our noses with you know, our paid approval in the first place, right? Right. Well, then that begs another question. Why aren't we capable of this? Well, that goes back to what we were talking before. Do you need a moral people to have limited government or a limited government to have a moral people? I think it's pretty clear that we're not morally restrained enough as a people. 
And therefore, yeah. is it possible for this current generation to learn its lesson, turn it around, or do we need to go 40 years in the desert and just be eliminated? Is that the way of the world? Yay, judgment, Todd says. He's got his judgment pom-poms on over here in the studio. This is a great question from uh, Beth Smith, who says, how are we going to control the narrative after Trump loses? Oh, boy. This will be interesting. And I was... um, I was on a group text with a couple of uh, uh, friends of mine in, in the conservative movement earlier today uh, talking about this question. And, and one of them said, I cannot wait for this disaster of an election to be over. And I chimed in, this election, it's not going to be over with this election. It's just going to transition. This, this election, I don't believe, is a one-off. I think it's a culmination. And so now that we've had the earthquake, now we've got to deal with the aftershocks and the cleanup. What's going to happen after this election is the system and the media, and I apologize for the redundancy, the system and the media are going to, are going to set up immediately two false choices. And, and how we as conservatives respond to this will go a long way into determining whether there's still going to be conservatism in the time moving forward. Let's talk about that when we return. Listening to Steve Dace. You're listening to Steve Dace. All right, so we're doing a little something uh, different here in the first hour of the show tonight here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. If you're on our Facebook wall, you can watch the video feed, including during the breaks for this first hour, a little Facebook Live. And so we're taking questions that you've given us about this election on Facebook, and we're answering them this hour. And and we're now tackling a question by Beth Smith, who wants to know, hey, how do we deal with the narrative after this, after this election, and it's likely that Trump loses? Well, um, Depending on what happens, I mean, the degrees of this narrative will change, gentlemen, don't you think? If if just Trump loses, but Republicans maintain both houses of Congress, there will be a there will be a degree of narrative. If Trump loses and they lose the Senate, there's another degree of narrative. If they, if Trump loses and they lose everything, that's another degree of narrative, don't you think? That what the 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 level of fallout will somehow determine the. Uh, the level of this particular narrative. So I think some of this we kind of have to wait and and just see, uh, you know, when the votes are counted, what happens on Election Day to get, you know, to, to have a final answer and a final strategy. But in general, I think we know this for sure. After the election, there's going to be two dominant narratives portrayed to varying degrees depending on what the actual outcome turns out to be. On the one hand, it will be uh, autopsy 2.0, uh, like we saw in 2012, uh, that we're not lame enough, that we're not feckless enough, that we don't pander enough, right? So this will be the, the you know, it's like, the, it, that wasn't an autopsy. It was like Reince Priebus's nocturnal emission is what that thing was. All right, this is like, I mean, that, that's, this, is, this was like if, 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 a, uh, if, if an autopsy of the Republican Party was written by the comments section at Salon, this is the party they would want us to be, that, that narrative will be out there. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And the media, the, and, and, and then there will be, then you've got to have an alternative, 
Trump will provide a very convenient alternative because he won't go away. Trumpism is not going away. That's why I'm, I'm telling people this won't end after this election. It will just transition. Too much gold in them, their hills. Too much money to be made. When, when you've had access, in fact, there's a fascinating story that Bloomberg Business put out today about the stuff we've been talking about on this show for months, the mining of Trump and his team mining the GOP and the RNC's voter vault, mining their data for, the, for, for future endeavors, and they're just open and openly talking about it now. Right? So this is now out in the open, what we've been talking about on this show for months. With, with the Republican Party voter vault, what that essentially means is he has been given the data on every right-of-center consumer who's registered to vote in America. That's what it means. Can you get a half million of those people to pay you 10 bucks a month for Trump TV? I don't know. If you can get 14 million of them to think that a con man ought to be president, he can probably con a half million of them into give him 10 bucks a month, gentlemen, don't you think? Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. 10 bucks a month, half a million people, times 12. That's some serious cashish, bro. Okay? That's some serious jack. Serious jack. So he won't go away. And, and so the media will need a foil. They will, they will need a foil to, um, to, to, you know, lukewarm, to use Todd's term, republicanism. They won't want that foil to be like Tea Party constitutional conservatism. They'll want the foil to be Trumpism. And so the narrative we will be sold after this election is there are only two options available to us. Literally just hand over our manly parts and stand for nothing ever again. Just own surrender, patent it, copyright it, marinate in it. The other will be stop rallying around the flag and, and lie down at night with Pepe the Frog. All right, become a neo-Confederate. That, that, will be, you know, that, that will be the other narrative because they'll need, the media will need a foil. And, 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 and they'll be fine with either one of these variations becoming the Republican Party. They, they don't care if it's weak, feckless, baseless. They don't care if it's debased, disgusting, race-baiting. They're, they're okay with either one of those narratives. And they're happy to play them off against each other because regardless of which one of those narratives win, guess who ultimately wins? The left does. Now, in between these two false choices, there will be a vast chasm of, of, of ground for some, for some form of libertarianism, constitutional conservatism, social conservatism at all, you know, the various traditional factions within the conservative movement we've had for 30, 40 years. But, but the ground, even though, ha- even though there's a lot of room between Trumpism and Reinsism, the ground, even though there's a, lot of, there's, a, there's a lot of ideological room, practically speaking, politically, the ground will shrink beneath our feet. And the system will seek to essentially snuff us out, to, 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 uh, to suffocate us, that there's no, there's, there's no place anymore for us to get our message out. If, as Ben Shapiro wrote today, if never Trumpers and reluctant Trumpers, who are the people that occupy this space between these two poles, these, these two false choices, if they don't get their act together and quickly after this is over, they're going to find that it doesn't matter how much common ground they have or whether they don't have any common ground or not, they're not going to have any ground to stand on. That the, that the only option they will be given as a movement will be one of these two false choices. And, and I think... 
It's going to require more than just people like this show or even somebody with a much bigger show like a Glenn Beck who has similar viewpoints on this than to, that, that, that we do. Or a reluctant trupper who has similar viewpoints on this as we do, like a Mark Levin. We're not going to be able to do this, I don't think, as free agents. I, I think we're going to have to actually come together as sort of a rebel alliance and form a concentrated dosage of this message between these two false choices. Otherwise, gentlemen, the system is going to effectively, Todd, I'll give you a Catholic term, excommunicate us. Am I paranoid? <laughs> no. Uh, you're reality-based. I think the I think the press may actually go out and try to help rehabilitate uh, both conservatives and the alt right. Try to write uh, fawning stories about what's next for them. Here's why I don't think that will happen, and I'll let you finish your point. Because the number one goal of elevating Trump beyond helping Hillary get elected was to brand conservatism with him. They want him and what he represents. That will be conservatism. Unless we are able to essentially shatter that mythology on our own. They needed it for right now. But now what they need to do is just like Obama, his his positives are up right now. Well, it's in compared to everything else that is going on. Hillary is winning. Well, it's in compared to Donald Trump. Now, Hillary is, as you said, Hillary's going to have the highest negatives of any president in modern American history. They need to find a way to take the uh, the spotlight off her. That's You build up multiple factions just for the purpose of them feeling strong enough and cocky enough to try to take their place. And and that will and that that will cause each other them to fight each other for prominence in the party, and that'll be the story. They want that Republican civil war, so they 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 need to keep every faction alive just enough to keep them fighting like that, so Hillary can go on her merry way. But but Todd, I think I think it's clear from Trump Bannon's actions, they're going to give them the war they want without us. They won't need us to spark a war. The Trump Bannon, because the, the Trump Bannon people, they're going to sell subscriptions to Trump TV on this war. They won't need us at all. They'll have Trump Bannon as the as the as the new opposition to sell them that we are the exact racist, xenophobes, uh, misogynists they always sold us as. Aaron, we'll find out what you think about this when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. Wake up, America, before it's too late. The Steve Day Show. All right, so we were carrying this uh, mini uh, debate in response to Beth Smith's narrative, post-election narrative question, into the break. So if you were watching us on Facebook Live, you got to see us uh, kind of going back and forth on this during the break. Now, Aaron, you've sort of sat there watching Todd and I sort of discussing this, laying it all out. You get to be the deciding vote. What do you think? Uh, I've got a different take. I, I think at 9.02 Eastern Time on November 8th um, in the evening or whenever the race is called, uh, I think everybody in that rebel alliance that you described, Steve, I think we all, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in this uh, circle as well, we all need to take a humble pill or something like that, have a little bit of humility and understand that, uh, yes, this is a two-way street rebuilding 
this relationship or rebuilding some semblance of a movement. It's a two-way street, so there are some of us who are going to have to meet halfway, some of us who are going to have to meet halfway. And yes, that sounds um, just um, grossly like um, you know compromise that's talked about by whatever the establishment used to be called. But I think um, in that vast chasm between the alt-right and the establishment, the, the, the um, Republican hacks, there's going to have to be a lot of understanding and, uh, quite frankly, coming together. And, yeah, that sounds like pie in the sky. But if we want to have a chance at surviving the next four to eight years, that's going to be what it takes, I think. I, I, don't think, I don't think there's any chance of what people think is the Republican establishment and either reluctant Trumpers or never Trumpers that's not what I'm re- coming I'm just, together that, on not, any that's level. That's not what I'm describing. Okay. Yeah. That's, I, I'm saying the vast chasm in between there. Um, there, there's going to have to be I gotcha. okay. some, some coming together. Yeah. Well, and, and they're going to have to come together and figure out what the message is, because I, I believe they're going to get drowned out, because the media will get the Civil War story that it wants from Trump-Bannon, who are going to turn in Civil War, for Civil War's sake, into a cottage industry for nine ninety nine a month. Let's continue. Uh, more questions here via Facebook. Julie Thornhill-Parr writes... We have seen some real deception uh, from some Christian leaders this cycle in the way they've made uh, certain analogies between Trump and biblical figures, which we have debunked a lot of these on this show, pardon me, over the last couple of weeks, um, and including the last couple of uh, countercultural podcasts we've done for Conservative Review, too. But uh, she wants to know, if Trump were to win, do you see further compromise and deception amongst believers, especially our leaders? On steroids, uh, Julie. On steroids. Welcome to total depravity. Yeah, I, I, I mean, there, how many? I, I'd have to go look it up. Aren't there? There's numerous verses in Proverbs about the allure of being involved in the king's court, of having a seat at the king's table, of a, it's being better a, for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish, Caiaphas. Yes. Yeah, but there's lots of talk about the the temptation of being invited to the king's banquet, having a seat mm-hmm. at the, at the table, and what that does. Okay, Uh, so I I think it comes down to this, gentlemen, if if we saw this much temptation to compromise and bend and sell out um, uh, for Trump before he won anything. And given that he's never really been ahead in this race at all, at all, has he really been ahead in this race? He's been more competitive than than he is right now, but he's never really been ahead. He's never been the favorite. There's never been a time where we knew for sure if the election were today, he would win. Look at how much debasing, beclowning uh, that we have seen some Christian leaders do for this individual when it didn't uh, in a campaign that it's never looked like he was going to win. Imagine what they would do. Imagine what indecent proposals would be made and consummated if he had the scepter, if he sat on the throne, if he actually had the power to wield to make sure that so-and-so televangelist son gets to be uh, you know, an appointment to West Point, uh, an appointment to Annapolis. You see what I'm getting oh at? My. Okay. Have you, have you stopped and thought no, about that? No, I haven't, that? and I don't want to. I mean, that so, is... So given, given the groveling, debasing, and beclowning we have seen in, a, in an election that it's never really looked like he was ever going to win, what do you think, Todd, you would see if he actually did? I had a conversation earlier this week with a woman who's at, here at the 11th hour. Instead of what I would call learning the lesson of Trump, 
is doubling down all harder. I mean, I mean the the idolatry that has been built around it's not Donald Trump actually. It's around Hillary Clinton. The hatred for her is causing people to say anything but. And the things that that will get you to believe in, do all the things you're talking about. But that's happening on the other side, too. They're saying anything. They're looking at him saying anything but and abandoning a lot of the stuff they claim to be offended by as well. This is C.S. Lewis coming to life about how the devil introduces pairs of negatives. So we do this. It's exactly he he understands us intimately and we are being played like a fiddle right now. I would uh, absolutely um, agree. And it is uh, it is disheartening and it's or disheartening to uh, imagine what this would be like if he actually did have power. I, I guess there is kind of maybe a, a silver lining to this uh, gray uh, the storm cloud here, and that's the idol worshippers will, as you uh, mentioned before, they'll have their own network uh, or their own on-demand video service. Will they try to and will they make as much noise as possible? Yes, they will. Will they go away after this election? No, they won't. But at least they're not going to be in charge. No. But then, I mean, again, who is going to be in charge? I mean, right now, look what we've seen to get a chance for a seat at the table, and right now there is no table. Mm-hmm. There is no table right now. What would you see if there was? What would you see if there was? More of your Facebook questions and uh, more of uh, watching us during the break if you're watching on Facebook Live here in just a moment. Stay tuned. Listening to Steve Dace. For a written transcript of this show, start writing really fast. Right now, Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, taking your questions on the 2016 election from those of you that are watching our little Facebook Live simulcast here on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Kristen Stiles has the next question. She writes, gentlemen, you guys reported that of the 14 million primary votes Trump received, 12 million were cast by Democrats. Let me stop right there for a second. That was actually a study that was done by someone at Red State. If I remember right, Aaron, is that, uh, that sounds right. I can uh, I can confirm. Yeah, because we, we no, nobody here on this show can count this high, so we wouldn't even begin to <laughs> we wouldn't even begin to add numbers like that. We're low energy we got, like yeah, Jeb Bush. Yeah, we got. <laughs> please clap. We've got like one decimal point in us, let alone multiple commas. Okay, so that, that that homie doesn't play that. That was actually a study somebody did at Red State. Um, I don't know if the study was accurate enough because I'm terrible at math. I just found it to be compelling, but I just wanted to clarify that. Here's the rest, though, of, of Kristen's question. She says, what is the rationale behind allowing open primaries? And what do you think would have been the result of the GOP primary if all of them would have been closed? Well, I think if all of them would have been closed, I think uh, that Ted Cruz would have likely been the nominee because I think every con- just about every contest he won was a co- was a closed primary or a caucus. Not all of them, but pretty much all of the ones that he won. And even in a caucus like Iowa that's technically open because it's a caucus, 
and you've got to actually participate and do stuff other than just show up and vote. It is a de facto closed election. That's why the, the turnout is lower, because only people that are really interested in doing, putting in the time get involved. So why do they have open primaries? If you go back to the convention in Cleveland, and you had uh, um, Morton Blackwell and Ken Cuccinelli were trying to negotiate on behalf of Free the Delegates with uh, Reince Priebus for a up-and-down vote. Or, for, or, or to not have a vote on Trump as the nominee. And if you'll recall, where Reince, do you guys remember where Reince drew a line in the sand on what he was not going to give in on? Do you remember what that was? Was it open or closed primaries? It was, yeah. of course, open primaries. Why? Well, do you think Lindsey Graham survives having five primary opponents in 2014 in a state as red as South Carolina? If it's a closed primary, you guys think he survives that? I hope not. Probably not. I'm not sure anymore, though, brother. <laughs> well, how about this? Do you think it's less likely? Can we at least at least hold on to that much hope? Sure. Is it at least less likely? I can hedge my bet that All much. Right, is, it, is it less likely that Matt Bevin loses? Matt Bevin was a good enough candidate to be elected the current governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So when the movement found him, this wasn't just some, you know... Some guy they found, I like your Facebook status, and we're going to run you against Mitch McConnell. I mean, this guy's legit. He's he's a governor of a state, right? So do you think that if that was a closed primary in Kentucky between McConnell and Bevin, given what we've seen Bevin do on a statewide level in another context, do you think he'd be more or less likely to have won that race? Oh, definitely more. I think definitely more. I'd and like go, to think metaphysical you, 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 you could just go right on down the line. The reality is, without a certain amount of Democrat crossover votes, the people running the Republican Party's candidates cannot remain in office. And, and this is their kryptonite against the grassroots, because the people who run this party hate their own base. And as you've heard me say on this show for years... These are people that would rather lose control or would rather lose elections than lose control of the party. The reason why they so vehemently opposed Trump for so long is they thought if he won that they would lose control. And then they recognized Trump's the ultimate deal maker. And so when we got to the convention, the Paul Ryan that Trump's people all hate right now, him and his buddy Reince, they crawled over broken glass. They did everything they could to railroad that convention for Donald Trump. And the reason why they all hate Ted Cruz and the reason why John Boehner called him the devil is because they thought that if Cruz won, they'd all be out, that he'd actually clean house, that he'd actually walk in there like Josiah and smash uh, and, and tear down the Asherah poles and, and clean out uh, the attic of the, uh, of the temple. All right. And they didn't want that. They figured in the end, Trump will cut the deal. He's pre- he's 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 preferable. So if you guys are going to have your tantrum, if you're going to have your anti-establishment revolution, then we'll take the art of the deal guy. Who you know, next hour we're going to play some audio of what Trump was saying about Obama and Hillary Clinton just a few years ago. That'll blow you away. So you know, they, they they in the end they figured, you know what? On some level, we're going to be able to do business with this guy. The other guy, Cruz, is an ideological zealot. He's just going to roll us. Even if it would cost him the election, he would roll us just on principle. This guy over here, though, his number one principle is himself. Who does that remind us of? Ourselves. And so um, that's the reality of this situation, Todd. Wow. That's wonderfully optimistic. It's not optimistic. It's not pessimistic. It's the weather forecast. That's what it is. I'm telling you, I'm the meteorologist telling you, 
that it's raining outside and you looked out your window, you wanted to know, hey, is it raining? So you turned on the weather channel and I'm here to tell you, yes, there is a storm front where you live. That's all I'm doing, giving you the forecast. And and that much we got right a long time ago before Aaron was on. I remember us talking about this question at the time. Who would the establishment choose, Ted Cruz or Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. And, and we did get this right. It, we, the, the art of the deal guy would be the guy. We, uh, Of course, we had no way of thinking it would come to this. I mean, we all felt that there were any number of fail-safes, that there was some core, plus the, op- the, the particular sit- lay of the land. We thought it was primed for the conservative revival. So we've been taught a valuable lesson, and I'm glad we were because this House of Cards, if it didn't fall now, it was going to fall sooner or later. You've said a few times, Steve, that uh, there are options when it comes to the GOP, either trying to uh, roll it and take it over again, and I think maybe you've said uh, destroy it as well. Do you think it's it's even capable of being uh, rolled over and uh, taken control of, and it's uh, the, the way it's currently formed. Is that even a possibility? I don't think there's any question the Republican Party can be taken over because Trump has. I think the question is whether we have leaders that are capable of doing it or willing to do it, have the stomach to do it. You know, I drew this analogy earlier this uh, earlier this afternoon on on Twitter when this topic came up, Aaron, and I pointed out that in many respects the Republican Party is like a denomination that has gone oh, uh, gone awry. That. Yeah. Now, in the hist- as far as I know, in the history of American Christianity, there has only been one denomination that once it came to the, once it stared into the abyss and dived in, came back, and that's the Southern Baptist Convention. How did they do it? Well, they did it the same way it would t- it would take in order to to revitalize the Republican Party for true conservatism. We'll talk about that next. Listening to Steve Dace. If it's true and you still don't like it, that's a you problem. You're listening to Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. I teased something before the break. Remind me what it was. I'm getting old. Talking about how the GOP is kind of like uh, an American evangelical Protestant uh, denomination. There's one denomination in um, that I know of. Uh, and maybe somebody will come up with another example, but I, I only know of one denomination in American Christianity that has ever stared into the abyss jumped in and come back. And that is the Southern Baptist Convention. And how did they do it? They had men like Paul Pressler and men like um, the late Adrian Rogers and others who, in the late 70s, early 80s, they literally went seminary to seminary, congregation to congregation, and it was the purge, baby. I mean, it was the purge. They just fired a bunch of folks. A bunch of them. Now, that caused folks to birth cows 35, 40 years ago. What would they do in this day and age and in the age of social media? For example, there's a story out. I've never heard of this gal. Apparently, she's a popular sort of Christian mommy blogger. Mm -hmm. And she gave an interview yesterday talking about how she's all in for the rainbow jihad. 
And Lifeway Books, who is her publisher, uh, pulled her books from the bookshelf saying, hey, you know, you're not, this isn't Christianity. What you're promoting is not Christian morality. We're not going to have any part in this. Is, do I have the story right here? You Aaron? have the story right. Because right, you're giving me the time out. So no, I want to make no, sure I'm I have just, my facts right. I, I just, uh, just wanted to inject uh, that, uh, yeah, InterVarsity had the same type of situation where they said, hey, this is the line where we're, we're, that we're drawing as well. And I saw some guy who, who, some reporter works for something called religious Religion News Service. This is why the church is dying in America for upholding its own standard. All right, so... That that fracas is a pimple on the backside compared to what you would have to do to cleanse a denomination in this day and age. That's why you got the free Methodists that this time we mean it free Methodists. We're free from the United Methodists that freed ourselves from the other Methodists, the last time Methodists, and on down the line. Because you know what it takes to cleanse, to purge? Now imagine doing this in a political party, but it's been done before. The, the leftists, the progressives did this to the Democratic Party after, after McGovern in 72. They spent the next decade purging the Democratic Party. Now, the idea that someone in leadership in the Democratic Party would be pro-life is just anathema. But yet, the idea that someone within the Republican Party that would be pro-death, that's not anathema if they'd be in a leadership position. So, it, it has been done. The left did it to the Democratic Party. But it, I don't know how many people we have in leadership positions, men, that have the stomach to either hit the kill switch and then put up with it after after they did. That's precisely where I was going to go. I mean, how many people have that uh, intestinal fortitude? I haven't seen very many. And it's not just the stomach. They don't believe in the fundamentals anymore. Well, if you don't believe in the fundamentals, you're not going to have the stomach. There's no question about that. Hey, I want to thank all of you that watched us on Facebook Live. Back here with hour number two Peace. in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 here on the Salem Radio Network. This is the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Uh, later in this hour, a guy who uh, played a huge role and making this show what it is he just may not know it so if whatever we are he gets some of the blame douglas wilson who also has the coolest name for a website i've ever heard blog and may blog uh, he will be our guest here coming up a little bit later on in this hour but uh, we're going to start off this hour i want to play audio of a couple of videos and 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 break them down and discuss them here on the on the program this is a video put out um, by a, uh, a Christian group called Faith Over Fear, and we, we have this video. You can watch it for yourself. It is up on our Facebook wall, and the last I saw, it was over 325,000 views were on this video. That's a lot, in case you were wondering. And it's a video about this election. We're going to play the audio, and then, gentlemen, I want to get your commentary on it here when it's finished. 
As a Christian, I've been told this election that we should hold our noses and vote for the lesser of two evils, that our vote is justified because no man is perfect, and that we're simply electing a president, not a pastor, that we should vote for the party platform, not the candidate, that we should prevent Hillary from appointing the next Supreme Court justice no matter the cost, that Trump is the strategic choice. But should I set aside my conscience and cast my vote based out of a fear of Hillary rather than my obedience to God? Should I turn a blind eye to Trump's incredibly public promotion of fornication, adultery, hateful rhetoric, sodomy, abortion, and mockery of God? A man who says he has never needed to ask God's forgiveness for anything. What if we're thinking about this in all the wrong ways? Is it possible that as Christians, God has a higher calling on our lives than voting for either of two candidates who are so completely hostile to his commands that God desires the trust of his people more than their strategies? That he desires our personal obedience more than he desires us to speculate about whoever the next Supreme Court justice may be? I believe in a God that is almighty, a God who very likely will allow either Trump or Hillary to become the next president. Yet even then, he will still remain in control. No matter who sits in the White House, no matter who rules in the courthouse, a higher king should rule in our hearts. If you too have decided that neither Trump nor Hillary represents your values, then please pay close attention. You still need to vote. And you need to vote for an actual ballot qualified candidate in your state. At faithtrumpsphere.com, you can learn how we as Christians can send a message to America that enough is enough and that we will no longer accept candidates that are unacceptable. If enough of us vote for actual candidates besides Hillary or Trump, we can make a statistically significant impact in this election and the major political parties will take note. But if you write in a candidate who's not actually running, then your vote will be disregarded and your voice won't be heard. Likewise, if you decide to protest and stay home and not vote, then you won't make a difference. You won't make a statistical impact. You won't be heard. That kind of misses the entire point. For a full list of candidates in your state, visit faithtrumpsphere.com. And if you know someone that would be encouraged by this message or hasn't decided who to vote for, then please share this video with them. We are not called to choose the lesser of two evils. We are called to holiness. God and God alone will save our country. And we should never cast a vote out of fear unless it's the fear of God. Remember that when the people of God vote like they belong to the kingdom of God, evil always loses. All right, so that's a, a Christian group called Faith Over Fear. We put it up on our Facebook wall earlier today. It's sitting at uh, over 300,000 views as we speak. Your thoughts on this message, Aaron, um, I'll start with you. I love it. Um, and maybe there's some strategy here. Uh, maybe you can help me out uh, with uh, figuring that out. My first reaction is, this is all solid. This is all great. Where the heck was this three months ago? 
I mean, I think I think it's uh, great that Christian leaders are coming out and saying, "Hey, there is another option here. You don't have to." I mean, this is this is uh, you know this is your conscience. This is this is your very role as a Christian. This is what's on the line here. If you're torturing yourself into voting for somebody who you know is corrupt, I I I, I love the message that there's another way out. I wish it would have happened sooner, but th- maybe there's a strategy here to raise a sense of urgency before the election. This is the second person in just the last week who has made this argument. Somebody emailed uh, you after we talked about the possibility of writing in Judge Roy Moore, and uh, he, he was stationed in Afghanistan, if memory served, and very respectful, very well written, made the same argument about being need, needing to be statistically counted. Uh, I, I've heard, I've listened, I'm unmoved by it. For your reason, Steve, talking about uh, Chapter 7 of your Worldview Wednesdays about we need to be a protest movement first, however we count the statistics right now has nothing to do on whether or not we have the stomach, uh, the fortitude, uh, the intellectual heft to pick the right fights going forward. That's what our next step needs to be. And uh, the, the bean counting... It might have a difference around the margins, but it's not the guts of what has to come next. Yeah, and if this is specifically about write-in versus actually somebody on the ballot, I would tend to agree with uh, Todd, because if that's the case, then you need to, if this is the, the whole thrust of that, which maybe maybe it is, I, I, the message that I got, that there is an, as there's another way out of this mess. Um, if that's the thrust, then, then yeah, I would, I would uh, agree with Todd, because you have to ask yourself, uh, what is a protest vote? What is a symbolic vote? What are you hoping to accomplish with one of those things? If it is um, getting your number read, if if it's just becoming a number, then then uh, maybe you know maybe it's a waste of time. But if it's just for your own conscience, uh, then you know by all means write someone in. I have to tell you, Todd, this argument actually, when I heard this, actually had an impact on me because what I heard them saying was. If we're going to make a symbolic protest vote, you have to make it in a certain way. Otherwise, it won't be counted. It'll be discarded. It'll be like you did not vote. Um, and, and yes, somebody will look at the undervotes. Like if your presidential election, like if you write in Judge Roy Moore and he's not acceptable in your state, but you voted for people who are on the ballot in other offices, somebody eventually will probably do the math and figure out you know, well, there's a lot of people didn't vote for president. Look at the undervotes. You know what I'm trying to say? But the point that I, I heard them making was if we're going to do this, then make it count. Vote for somebody who is ballot eligible or write in eligible so that that vote will be seen as the protest vote against this election that it was. And I and I say this is somebody who knows Judge Roy Moore on a personal level. I And I, I found that to actually be a somewhat compelling argument. So talk me out of it. I. I find it compelling as well. I just don't find it remotely compelling to set in terms of setting the table for what comes next. I mean, that's going to be like, in terms of the news cycle, our understanding of the lay of the land, you know, we're going to talk about that for five minutes and we're moving on. I mean, we're in a culture that's in civil war right now. I, I just, what legs, are, however we count those beans, what legs are they going to have? I mean, earlier today, you look at Trump's campaign financial disclosure. In the first three weeks of October, he gave his he spent thirty one thousand dollars of his own money on his campaign. That's it. That's and not it, very much. And it was all in kind contributions. 
um, which means things that could be reimbursed. They also stopped raising money for the R. They didn't raise a dime for the RNC. So he didn't raise any money for the Republican Party, and he only gave his campaign $31,000 in in-kind contributions. So I think that's pretty indicative, and this is the last month, guys. It's pretty indicative of a campaign that's actively not trying to win. So by, by and large, if we're going to make a protest vote, shouldn't we try and win something with it? Have it, have it registered? have it be counted as opposed to just completely discarded. That's well, where my question of what's the point of a protest vote? If nobody sees the protest, isn't it a tree falls in the forest? That's what I'm asking. I don't know. That's, well, what, yeah, I'm that's, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I turn I around and ask you because you know the machinations of the system, the players, how they work. Best case scenario, we follow through on this guy and we make all the right protest votes. How do you play that hand? I just don't have any faith that anybody can play that hand to effect. Well, I mean, you could vote for Evan McMullen. You could vote for the Constitution no, but after Party that, candidate and instead. And do what with that knowledge, that number that you get back? Do what? I don't know. Don't ask me to think. This is a talk show. For <laughs> goodness sakes, man. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. about convictions, not positions. Steve Dace. Again, if you want to hear more of the faith not or faith over fear audio or video, it's right there on our Facebook wall. I'm going to get it right. We can't start this over because it's live radio. Right. Hi, right, welcome back here to the Steve Dace Show. I'm just going to do it anyway. If you want to hear that, uh, or you want to, I, I screwed it up again. Should have just stuck with it the first time. <laughs> if you want to watch the video of the audio we just played, it's on our Facebook wall. Thank you. Did I get it right that time? Are we good? You're, you're good. We're good. We nailed it. Nailed it! Is this our Marconi edition tape right now? <laughs> Absolutely it's not. You bet it's not. All right. This is some audio that uh, or, that was first posted, I, th- I believe, by Ben Howe, uh, and then uh, The Resurgent. And I think this is Trump talking after the 2008 election. Is that correct, Aaron? That's correct, Jim. You ready for this? Todd, you ready? Let's go. Have you heard this yet? Yes. Oh, you have? Oh, okay, I shouldn't have asked that, because then it would have produced more drama. This is the third time I've screwed up in this segment. I'm blowing this big time, guys. You may have to take me home from here. I might have to go Phil Collins. Take me home. You guys take it from here. I'm dragging us down. Let's just play the audio. Listen to this. What do you make, Donald Trump, of Barack Obama's victory? Well, first of all, I don't think any Republican could have won. And as I said to you and I said to other people, McCain really, that was almost an impossible situation. Uh, Bush has been so bad, maybe the worst president in the history of this country. He has been so incompetent, so bad, so evil, that I don't think any Republican could have won. Bring back Dwight Eisenhower, maybe. I'm very happy with what I'm seeing from Barack Obama. I think it really is change, and I think we need change. I am very happy to see the moves that he's made and the moves I think that he's going to make. I think he's going to be a very inspirational president. I think he's going to be good for the economy. He's done an amazing job. The job he did is amazing. We had an opportunity, Dominic, after the World Trade Center attack to be, you know, for the first time, the world loved us. They had great compassion for us. And 
All of a sudden, Bush just destroyed that by his antics. I think Barack Obama can bring back the world. When I saw him in Germany, I saw him speak and the crowds and everything else. I think we really have a chance with this president to bring back love or at least affection. Please clap. Your thoughts on this? Didn't you say something about... I don't think it was this type. I think it was the one where he was actually talking about Hillary or Bill Clinton, that you would just pay the money and roll this tape as a commercial for Hillary Clinton. Yes. Yeah, I don't... I, you don't need to doctor it, edit yeah. it, add music to it, just... I'm really not... I'm, I'm surprised more people don't do stuff like this. Like, I don't... You know, I don't know why... You know, if I was running... I, I thought... If I were running Rubio's campaign during the primary, when that that we had that like you know qualifying match between him and Jeb Bush last summer, you know who was going to kind of be that candidate? Why didn't Rubio just like run commercials? I'm, I'm endorsed by Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush, you know what I'm saying with with all this nice stuff that Jeb, or and by the way, Rubio said a nice a lot of nice stuff about Jeb Bush. You could have done the same thing to him. Maybe that's why they didn't do that. They could because <laughs> they said so much nice things about uh, the other that uh, the other guy could do it as well. But I'm I'm I would do stuff like that. Like I if I, I if if my opponent said these sorts of things about me, why would I not run? An endorsement ad. I tried to get the Cruz campaign. I'll, interest of full disclosure now that it's over. There may be some more things I can tell you that I just couldn't tell you when this thing was live because of confidentiality and other things, okay? But I will say this now. I, I fought hard last summer to, to have the Cruz campaign. I even wrote an ad. I even wrote it to try and get it done. To have the Cruz campaign run an endorsement, air quotes, from John Boehner. And from Mitch McConnell and, you know, to brand him as the anti-establishment candidate and have and, and just have the ad be a compilation of what the people, the very Republican leaders that the, the, the base just hates have a compilation of them. And what and the clippings of what they've said, but do it upright like it was like a real, uh, you know, endorsement, but it's clearly tongue in cheek. You know what I'm saying? I wanted to run that ad and they, they wouldn't do it. But I don't know why more people don't do things like that. You know that. what that would have been? It would have been a version of the, squee- the squeal yes. ad. Yes. That's how I tried selling it to him. I said, hey, Joni Ernst was at 8% before she ran this squeal ad. Now she's only one of 100 U.S. senators. She's. She's got maybe her desk, desk. Her desk is next to yours, Ted. I don't know why more people didn't don't do stuff like yeah, this. Yeah, you do. I don't because they're awful. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thursday, everybody. Now, can, let me. Can I? Can I defend Trump here? And did I just say <laughs> that? <laughs> what? Because because here's the thing. Now the stuff he says about George W. Bush is 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 clear pandering to to the left, but. In fairness to Trump, he is not the only person who eight years ago thought that this was going to be an inspirational presidency. He's not the only person who eight years ago thought, policy issues aside, maybe maybe the good that can come out of this is we can finally bury the hatchet and, and, and the racial animosity from the founding of the country, the slavery debate, into, into Reconstruction, and then Jim Crow, and then segregation, and, and then the civil rights battles, and busing, and affirmative action. He's, not, he's hardly the only person who thought, you know, 
regardless of whatever policies we will get, just some decency and good can be accomplished here. Should we cut him some slack no. on this? That's no. what other people thought. Donald Trump was lying then, just like he's always lying now. Why not cut him some slack on this? Tell me why. The Donald Trump we've come to know was really hopeful for decency and good. <laughs> no. I'm surprised he knows how to say it. I mean, this is I like tried. Donald Trump uh, in Saturday Night Live uh, apologized. I'm going to apologize. I'm surprised he knows what decency and what was the other word? Tolerance or whatever we need, means. We need love to and get, affection. Love that and Obama affection. was going to bring back love and affection. Yes. We need love to get affection. you a sign like at Notre Dame, whatever sign they It tap. was the last time I heard about love and affection, the Nelsons. Remember the Nelsons sang that song when they had the long blonde hair? Remember Ricky Nelson's uh, twin sons? What love are you and affection. Talking about? Don't you remember that big Would hit you when please we were tap your total depravity sign and get back on the rails? Really, I'm really glad Douglas Wilson. Talk to him, Aaron. Next <laughs> segment. Did I just drop a Nelson's reference? Every 44 year old woman in our audience just swooned when I dropped a Nelson's re- reference. But anyway, finish your point. Thank God this wasn't on Facebook Live. This is appalling, Steve Dace. What are you doing to your brand? Oh, Lord have mercy. I, tarnishing it. And there's a lot of that going around these days. All the cool kids are doing it. Just tarnishing their brands right and left. Yeah, this shouldn't, I mean, again, uh, as with most things with Donald Trump, this shouldn't surprise anybody, should it? I mean, he's a New York City liberal, which I guess is offensive to him and all New York Cityans or people of New York. But uh, this is uh, this is who he is. This is who he always has been. He always triangulates to whoever he wants to pander to next and we've seen that speaking of commercials and this has been brought up this is not my original thinking but i've got to ask you where was the oppo research where was Cruz? where was rubio putting this out why do you think it would have worked would have made a difference yeah look at it now I don't know. Uh, Do you think so? I mean, listen. Outcomes are forgotten. You put that out there. This guy stood up at a South Carolina debate where they have per capita more military retirees than any state in the union. And he he sat up there in the South Carolina debate and said that basically Bush lied and people died. And he won South Carolina overwhelmingly. Do you think it would have mattered? Yeah, good point. Irish in my point. I, I would like for you to be right, Todd. I would. I just don't think you are. Listening to Steve Dace. Want your country back? Keep listening for instructions. This is Steve Dace. Joined now by a man that is at least partially responsible for whatever this radio program has become over the years. Because one of my old sports talk radio listeners used to send me these tapes after I got converted to Christianity. used to send me these tapes. He said, hey, I found a, a guy who is a pastor in Idaho that you need to listen to. And so he used to send me these tapes, cassettes, before we had podcasting, and I started listening to these, and I thought, this guy's insane. I like it. And his name is Douglas Wilson. He joins us now. He's got the coolest name for a blog in America. It's called Blog and May Blog. Like, eight people know why that is funny, and they are all belly laughing, Doug, right now. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So, Doug, you are here to remind our audience of how important it is to vote in 12 days because this is the least important election in our lifetime. Exactly. <laughs> Tell us why you yeah. think that. Well, 
as my entire adult life, as long as I can remember, people have been saying this is the most important election in our lifetimes because they have to gin up interest and that they need to motivate people. They're trying to get the chimps jumping and, you know, they, they just need to do that. And, uh, one of the things I think we need to recognize is the atrocious choice that we have come down to. I mean, a country of 330 million people and we winded it down to these two. <laughs> are you, are you serious? It's, cl- it's clear to me that the only way we could have gotten to these two as our final choice is if would be if we were making serious choices for the last 50 years already. In other words, we've already been we've already done our choosing, and and now we we just have to deal with it. People do ask that question: How is it possible that these are our choices? Well, let's attack this theologically and philosophically, Douglas. I mean, what, Doug, what does this say about us, that these are the choices that, that depending on, uh, you know, how much weight you put on God's direct sovereignty into these sorts of matters, on some level we played a role in this. Maybe not the ultimate level, maybe a minuscule level, but somewhere on the God's sovereignty flowchart, we did play a role in this. So, so right. what does that say about us, Doug? So the first thing, what does it say about us anthropologically? What does it say about us politically, sociologically? It, it, it tells me that demolition derby is not a good way to select a president. <laughs> <laughs> right? sometimes, sometimes the last two heaps out there running are it's just the luck of the draw, right? Yeah. We, they, even, even though I had numerous policy differences with a number of the people who started out this presidential year, there were virtually, say virtually all of them were more qualified, um, biblically speaking, to occupy the office than the two we've narrowed it, narrowed it down to. So uh, I believe that we need to uh, restock, um, take take stock of our uh, some of our procedures and our primary. Um, rules, et cetera, one of them being open primaries. Okay, so when you, ha- when you have open primaries, you're saying, hey, uh, the, the logic has been for years, hey, let's try to get new blood in, let's have people come in who've never been Republican before and have them vote. Well, <laughs> congratulations, right? That's, that's what you've got here. Um, so I think we can uh, suggest some reforms in our processes, et cetera. But, but theologically, even excuse me, even though men make mistakes, God never does, and uh, He uses the instrumentality of fallen men to accomplish His final purposes. And I believe His purpose in this is to humble us. Um, I mean, are you are you serious? How can I travel internationally now? I, how can I hold my head up, uh, man? Look what we did. Look what the uh, look what this nation, as blessed by God as we have been, look what we did. That that is a great headline. No matter who wins on November the ninth, look what we did. That's, right. That that's that's yeah. that's your second coming print headline right there. Doug Wilson is here with us. Uh, you can check out his website. Uh, blog and May Blog is the name, and we're talking about why he thinks this is the least important election in our lifetime. A little tongue in cheek there, of course. But when we come back here with Doug sure. in a minute, uh, he talked about he thinks God is using this election to humble us. 
Uh, well, I think that begs two follow-up questions uh, that we'll tackle here after the break. Humble us to what end? Uh, to what end? And number two, are we getting the humility message given how we have Christian leaders out there literally contorting the scriptures into a pretzel to compare Trump to vicious, bloodthirsty Old Testament dictators as if that is positive affirmation? Uh, We will get to that here with Douglas Wilson in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. We're not concerned about what you think, but why you think it. Steve Dace. All right, back here with Douglas Wilson. He is a pastor, theologian, thinker. Name of his site is blog and may blog, talking about the least important election in our lifetime. Now, now Douglas, you think that, that God is trying to humble us in this election. So I think that begs yeah. two follow-up questions. Let's take these one at a time. First of all, to what end? Humble to, we, that we need to be humbled. To what end? Um, I think that we have to come to grips with. And I've said this many times in many ways: is that politics is not our savior. But at the same time, we have to confess that politics needs to be saved, right? So it's not one. A lot of people, when they say politics is not our savior, what they mean is go do something else or check out, let the professionals run it, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that politics is our savior at all, but I think that the political process and the, the political things we do need to be saved. And so I believe God is humbling us, showing us that our secular might, power, arrogance, our, our idea that we could govern ourselves without reference to God, that we could sustain a commitment to human rights without a commitment to the God who gave them to us, is laughable. It's a joke. And uh, so we've now gotten to the punchline, right? God has taken this great empire and put a little red rubber clown nose on us. <laughs> and that's that's to humble us. And... and so if this election is a judgment, you can't stage manage a judgment. You, you can't choreograph it. Uh, you have to do what God wants you to do, which is not vote for the lesser of two evils. If, if you say, oh, I have to vote for Trump because he's the lesser of two evils, what you're telling me is three elections from now, when Hillary is the lesser of two evils, you're going to vote for her, Right. You're, 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 where's the stopping point? When do you say I'm done? When do you say deal me out? Um, so if, so the, what I meant by my blog post is the electing part, the voting part is the least important part of the election in our generation, in our lifetime, because we've already made all our choices that way. But it's, I think it's the most important time if Americans try to get their heads around, minds around, hearts around, the concept of repentance, political repentance. We need to stop chopping up the babies. We need to stop pretending that homosexual mirage is anything but a mirage. We need to stop thinking that we can tailor reality to to uh, to suit ourselves. Reality, as as they used to tell us back in the sixties and seventies, reality is not optional. 
Are we getting the message that we need to be humbled when we see the amount of beclowning and debasing of certain Christian leaders that we have seen in this election? One individual saying things like, I would vote for Trump over Jesus if he were running. Uh, the, 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 the misappropriation of scripture when, when the comments that Trump made about grabbing women's genitals came out and James Dobson sounded like a liberal when he said, well, let he use without sin cast the first stone. I seem to remember we had a quarry lined up for Bill Clinton back in the day when, when he said and did uh, uh-huh. things similar or, or the comparisons that we are making, um, of Trump to bloodthirsty dictators of antiquity like Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar as if, you know, Nebuchadnezzar just got up one day, interpreted his own dream. There was nobody there with the Spirit of God that was involved at all. So we're not reading the book of Daniel, uh, Douglas. We're re- reading the book of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're not reading the book of Nehemiah. We're reading the book of Xerxes. And these guys, these 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 wanton pagans just got up and just said, you know, I, I think I'm just going to you know, be an instrument of God's common grace and, and do what is right without any prompting from any providence or any standard bearer for God's uh, kingdom here on earth whatsoever. Whatsoever. Do you think we're getting right. the message uh, that we need to be humbled when we see these things? I think some people are, but many are not. That's that's the thing that's dismaying. I, many Christians are doubling down on the idolatry of the false choice that's being presented to us, and they think the only way out is to vote. You must vote because that's the only way out. No, if we repented, God has a thousand ways to get us out. There are all, um, scripture, I'm fond of telling my people in our congregation that God loves cliffhangers. So Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain and, and delivers him at the last minute. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Um, Jehoshaphat marches out to meet the enemy with the choir in the front, and God, uh, God delivers them. It's sort of God believes in just-in-time delivery, basically. And we, we see this happen in Scripture again and again and again. And, and God can—the uh, Israelites are on the, on the banks of the Red Sea, the, the Red Sea lapping at their toes. They look across the water. They look behind them. There's Pharaoh's army. And God says, basically, uh, I have raised up Pharaoh so that I might get me honor, <laughs> right? God, God can deliver us any number of ways, but he conditions it upon repentance. We have to turn to him and say, look— we made a hash of it. We busted this. You gave us, you gave us so much bounty, so much wealth, so many liberties. You gave us the most orderly society in the history of humankind, and we wrecked it. We're sorry. We repent. Would you deliver us? Uh, so I would, I would urge Americans everywhere, uh, whatever they believe, they are conscience bound to, uh, to do in the voting booth before God. The thing they must do before everything else is repent and say, God, deliver us. We made a hash of it. What's been the reaction? I've seen you've got several hundred comments to this piece up on uh, on your blog. What's been the reaction, by and large? Um, by and large, I've, I've had, I'm getting a lot of um, positive feedback. There's some blowback. There's some... Some people there calling me an idiot, and you don't, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, and that's not realistic. But in, in what era has a massive repentance of a people turning back to God been called realistic by the unbelievers beforehand? Hmm. The, the, they never, they're not going to call it that. The Bible says in Proverbs that the king's heart 
is in the Lord's hand. He, he turns it whatever way he wishes. If all, all that God would have to do is nod, and we are delivered. Hmm, and what we, what, we need, what we need to do is to seek him, pray, pray for that, uh, worship him with that in view. There is no hope in man. Trust, it. Trust not in princes or in presidential candidates. Well said. Doug, it's always good to have you on the show, brother. God bless you, all right? Great. Thank you. We'll come back, have some reaction. What we just heard from Douglas Wilson here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Right versus wrong, not right versus left. This is Steve Dace. All right, some reaction to what we just heard from Douglas Wilson. Aaron, I'll start with you. What would you think of what Doug had to say? If he's right that God is using this election to humble us, and, and I hope that he is right, I also hope that it actually accomplishes that. And I think that we're going to find that out very, very quickly uh, right after the election, or maybe even maybe even beforehand. The reason I say that is because it's become obvious. When you look at Trump cult, you look at uh, different factions of really both right and left of center in the United States, we are a, stick, uh, a stiff-necked people. So I think we will find out very quickly whether or not we have actually been humbled by this election, because stiff-necked people stay or tend to stay stiff-necked. I love how I said, if we repent, God has hundreds of ways to make this stop. We need a lot more of that still, small voice confidence. It's like you said, Steve, when you talked uh, a while back about uh, the story of the parting of the Red Sea, backed up uh, in between uh, that... Uh, Stand still and wait for the yes. salvation yes. of the Lord, Moses How, says. What, what's, what are we going to do? What's God going to do? Because Moses doesn't yeah, know what God's exactly. going to do either. He doesn't have a clue. Just watch, baby. Yeah. I think that's where we need I think that's a good uh, what, a good, uh, good time to bring that up. I think that's where we are. Maybe we're headed towards 40 years, like uh, Todd has posited a couple of times, or maybe this is we're looking at a generation who can rise up and um, you know actually act like Christians. It is sad to see... So many Christians and Christian leaders, on one hand, say, and, and on one hand, misappropriate these biblical analogies that we've talked about and broken down and dissected on this show. So it's okay to stretch, the, at the very least, the context, the spirit of the scriptures to compare Trump to Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Rahab, Samson, etc. But to allude to something that, you, that is a specific application... That God does miracles for his people. He delivers his people. When as a Christian, you're a Christian not because you believe the Bible, but because you believe that God supernaturally intervened in human history to raise a dead man to life. Preach. This is the only religious system ever founded on the planet that begins with an objective historical fact. Is it true or not? If Christ be not raised and your preaching is in vain, you're all dead in your sins. We're all wasting our time here. We're all fools if, if you didn't walk out of that tomb. Your understanding of creeds and, and theologies and applications and, 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 and what the Bible says and doesn't say all comes second after this acknowledgement of this fact. 
So if you're a Christian, then the basic premise of your worldview begins with God supernaturally intervening into human history to perform something miraculous. So might I suggest that if what Douglas Wilson is saying to you doesn't compute, but Trump is Nebuchadnezzar sounds like solid theology, that either you've never really studied the scriptures or you actually might not be a Christian. Listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Government should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And hour number three underway here on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Coming up, what it's like to try and impact Hollywood with your faith. The actor David A.R. White is going to join us, one of the stars of the hit, uh, the hit God's Not Dead movies. He's going to join us here in about... Oh, the bottom of the hour, 20, 25 minutes or so. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. It's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is that time of the night when our producer Aaron lines up three questions about any three things that he so desires. Nothing is off limits, but there is one rule. He has to answer the same questions, too. He can't just lob snotty questions at us. He's got to answer them as well, provided you're willing to do that, Aaron. It is uh, your turn to take control. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Question one, is the church, by and large, abdicating too many of its responsibilities to parachurch, uh, parachurch organizations? I don't know if it's abrogating them as much uh, directly to such organizations as much as it just abrogated uh, a lot of its cultural responsibilities and things were created in order to fill the void because nature abhors a vacuum. Um, it, it, it could be a little bit of both. I think a lot of these, uh, and, and a lot of them do really good work, but I think a lot of these parachurch organizations now give the church an excuse to not do its actual job uh, fully. Similar to the Johnson Amendment, I think there's been one church ever in the history of the Johnson Amendment that's had its uh, 501c3 status taken away uh, for, for proselytizing politically from, uh, from, from the pulpit. Uh, the reality is uh, hundreds of pastors across the country in the last few years have openly done it in defiance of the Johnson Amendment in order to dare the IRS to do something about it because the Johnson Amendment's not worth the paper it's printed on. But... I think churches love the Johnson Amendment because it gives them sort of a fig leaf tod, an excuse to not speak up, not take a stand. They can say, well, they'll come after our tax-exempt status when that is really not true. Uh, so I think likewise, uh, some of these parachurch uh, movements give the church an excuse to say, well, you know, we don't have to talk about that here in the church because so-and-so will do it instead. 
I agree. Uh, the Catholic Church, in my estimation, has a big problem with this. It has a group called Catholic Charities. It does do uh, great work, but it's also been involved well with some questionable things. Uh, th- there's an entire movement that causes a controversy each and every year, and the name of it is, is, is escaping my head. It's not affiliated with Catholic Charities, but it's a movement that's uh, funded ACORN and, and uh, things like that. So it's got some sketchy allegiances, some allegiances that uh, defy uh, church teaching on a regular basis. And then as a fundraising thing, you can be sure every year there's a speech uh, from the pastor on behalf of the diocese about fundraising, and that thing comes like clockwork. Whether speeches come about the uh, other things of the gospel and social teaching, those are far more sketchy. So this, there's a lot of problems, and this dovetails with why I, as many times as I can, read Marvin Olansky's um, book, The Tragedy of American Compassion, how the church gives not only this away to parachurch organizations, that's just one more step giving it away to government, and there you are basically just going to church to get a version of the Oprah show then. I would agree with that, and I, I would agree with the analysis that has been uh, brought forth uh, so far. And I think it's it's almost impossible to quantify this sometimes, uh, but the fact that we have a welfare state in the United States uh, would seem, well, it does lend uh, credence to the fact that the, the church has just kind of abandoned some of its responsibilities to ar- other organizations. Sometimes it's government, sometimes it's parachurch uh, Organizations. Reminder, if you have an idea for three questions, send it my way, Aaron at SteveDace.com, like Maddie Hinman, who brings us a question two. If some generous donor offered you a four-year degree, completely paid, what institution would you choose and what would you study? Wow. Um, I would choose one that I could do from home because I'm married and I have a career and I have kids. Um, and TV, VCR, gun repair. Remember that commercial? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I would choose one that I could do from home. University of Phoenix? No, I mean, I'm sure there's... <laughs> Trump University? Trump University. ITT. I'm sure there's... I mean, there's probably a ton of universities that do this nowadays. So I would go along those lines of something that I could do virtually at home. Uh, because I'm a, an, I'm a now middle-aged uh, male with a husband or with a with a wife and kids, so this is a code for you don't want to meet your leave your basement, right? Well, that, well, I mean, listen. The reality is, I could the game watching hangout atmosphere is a lot better in a college campus than it even is at my man cave. It, it's really about I've got responsibilities, so uh, it would have to be something along those lines, and and the subject matter would probably determine. Uh, what it is that, um, uh, or where it is that I would go, because I'd obviously, if there's somebody's going to pick up the tab, I want to pick up the best of the best I could find in that th- in that field. So I would I would probably select something theological, uh, just off the top of my head. I I can't necessarily think of one particular, and it might just even be a general one. It might be like a divinity or something like that. Uh, you know, a very a, a, a generic theological pursuit, but probably something along those lines. I would study the same discipline, and there are various uh, universities uh, attached with or affiliated with uh, the Vatican in Rome, so it would be there. I would uh, study philosophy at uh, any Ivy League school or maybe Oxford. Not so much that I would learn uh, more about philosophy, that, uh, more so that I could spar with others. Although philosophers... Um, 
there are some of them who are still uh, who are still good. Uh, question three, game to be at this weekend, and this question isn't as easy as it has been in, in weekends past. What were you telling uh, telling us uh, during a break a couple nights ago, Steve, about college football this weekend? There are 15 ranked teams on the road this week, and there's only 25 ranked teams. So 15 of the top 25 is uh, are playing road games, and five of them are playing road games against other ranked teams. So this has the potential to be chaos uh, this weekend. This... This is, um, I mean, we don't have the, the, the week we had about a month ago. We had three games between top 10 teams. But in terms of up and down uh, the polls, particularly because Tuesday is when the first college football playoff rankings come out, which oh, is really right. the only poll that matters. Uh, so having this sort of a chaotic schedule of games right before those rankings come out on Tuesday, I mean, the timing of such is this is the best weekend so far of the season. But the, what's the game? Oh, he didn't ask me a question. He's, he asked me to clarify a point that I made on the uh, uh, I made. Oh, game to be at this weekend. in light of in light of that. Yeah. Um, I'll go. You go ahead. It's and I think it's a, it's Washington Stanford, right? Washington at Utah. Oh, it's Utah. Yeah, okay. Well, still, Utah. that would be it because I am intrigued by Washington. I, I I'm not a uniform slappy like you. But I've always dug University of Washington, that purple and gold. And I love, I remember fondly, for some reason, that uh, remember the defensive end, Steve, what was his name? Entman. Entman. That team yeah. could bring the pain. I like that team. So I'm curious if Washington is ascendant again. We played them in back to back Rose Bowls. One right, year that's they, true. Of course, one year, you did. One, one year they drilled us. The next year, Tyrone Wheatley ran all over him and we won. But uh, those were. Very talented teams, and one of those teams won a national championship. So uh, that was uh, under the late, uh, great uh, Hall of Fame coach Don James. But um, I'd be okay with that if you wanted to pick that game. Um, you know, Clemson, Florida State yeah, at night uh, at Dote Campbell. That seemed too easy, but you're right. Yeah, Oof. I mean, that's – and the last couple of years those teams have played – or two of the last three years – they have played. And, and they played very. Uh, they played some close games. Uh, the one game they came in when Florida State was number one with James Jameis Winston on a Saturday night. They went down to Death Valley and just named the score against them. But other than that, the last few years that that has been a really good series. I, I was just trying to think of is there a is there a sneaky game a sneaky good game. Last time you, you got did you this. got one, Aaron. Go ahead. I, I think this could be sneaky good because um, Wisconsin. Hosting Nebraska. I'm with you on that. I think the spread on that is way too large. Well, Wisconsin has a tremendous defense. Uh, They're going to make a lot of offenses look silly like they did to Iowa last week. What is the spread? I haven't seen it. Eight and a half. Um, In favor of who? At some point, with this murderer's row schedule, you just have to think at some point there's going to be some sort of breaking point. But I... I don't know. So that could be sneaky. And it's, it'll be at night. That'll be a tremendous atmosphere. I mean, you're right. I mean, that, that will be a phenomenal game. I think I think Nebraska will play very well because it's their first chance to really show the country right. who they are. You're listening to Steve Dace.
Check us out online at SteveDace.com, where you get show archives and opinions each day. You're listening to Steve Dace. And now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz, where we go back and take a look at some of the stuff we didn't have a chance to get to during the course of the three-hour program that is the Steve Day Show. As reported to us, these are the headlines making buzz on your social media, trending at your water cooler, courtesy of uh, our producer Aaron. He's got those headlines. We've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. First story, a new wave or the new wave of social justice feminism has deconstructed gender equality. To such a degree now that the famous feminist play, The Vagina Monologues, is no longer acceptable because it doesn't represent all bodies. This oddity, the uh, outdated requirement that to be a woman you must have a vagina, is currently playing out on college campuses across the nation. As a result, the once heralded female-centric play is being rejected by theater groups. An American university student uh, panned the antiquated script because it dates, uh, or because it dares suggest that only women have vaginas, and quote represents a binary represent- uh, representation of gender. End quote. Playwright Eve Ensler weighed in on the backlash her work has received. She said, "Quote: The vagina monologues have never intended to be a play about what it means to be a woman. It has always been a play about what it means to have a vagina. In the play, I never defended a woman <laughs> as a person with a vagina." End quote. Turn out the lights. <laughs> you know, this is where this is where if you didn't have that whole love your neighbor as you love yourself uh, thing, so you, you didn't have this, you know, divinely given moral obligation. Is that still a rule? Uh, yes, to to engage the world around us. I, I would just be inclined to just grab your, your own private Idaho, take your wife and your kids there, make sure you got the satellite dish with the football package, and just let these people bugger each other to hell, and just say, you know what, man. This is the culling of the herd. I mean, this is this is natural selection come to the Homo sapien uh, species, and by all means, just you know what, just it, just feast upon yourselves like the like the swarm of locusts you are. However, because we do have that pesky love your neighbor as you love yourself thing, we will remain here in the middle of the maelstrom and continue to try engage these people, even though they have been given over Todd to their own depraved minds. And so the question is, the center cannot hold on this. This thing will kill itself. But the question is, how much damage will it do to those of us who don't buy into it, who reject it before things correct Well, I mean, it's itself? a little bit... This is the cultural equivalent of saying... Um, you know, we've got a flu epidemic here in our tribe, so let's unleash Ebola to wipe out the people who have the flu. And then, and then what's, what'll be the collateral damage on the rest? I mean, yes, that, of course. There's going to, be, going to be tremendous damage done. No question about that. This is unavoidable. This is a plague. That's yeah. what this is. It is a plague. I think the answer to that question is the answer to the question, uh, what does it cause, or what uh, causes locusts to die? I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head, but you would think maybe a lack of food, or just there is some sort of natural lifespan that has to be lived out here. Uh, second story on Tuesday evening, 
New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof voiced his concern about Twitter on Twitter about the lack of religious diversity in the media. His tweet came in response to the disturbing. So this is the first time he's looked around his newsroom. Yeah. <laughs> His tweet came in response to the disturbing revelation of emails from Clinton staffers that denigrated Catholicism and evangelical Christianity. He said, uh, quote, this, I think this lack of uh, religious diversity is one of our weaknesses in the national media. I have some experience with this. I actually, in my 12 years at the Register, I worked on this... Des Moines Register. The Des Moines Register, uh, relentlessly. And finally... I was actually made the religion reporter, and I treated that with the uh, the due diligence I thought it deserved, and that's exactly why they basically stopped letting me be the religion reporter after a matter of just like three months, because the copy I turned in was like heretical to them, and they just gutted it, and I told them, I said, don't you ever put my byline on a story again that you do that too, because I didn't do that product. It, it, he, they say things like this. They was, there's no way they would live with the reality of what it looked like because it would be actual real journalism. Yeah, I mean, I think they've you guys seen there's a video going around tonight with uh, Chris Matthews, of all people, on MSNBC saying to, I don't remember, I'm trying to think of who it was, some, I don't know if it's a member, of, another member of the media or a Democratic, no, it's a member of the media. And, and um, he, I think he asked her, how many pro-lifers work in your newsroom? How many pro-lifers are you surrounded with on your staff? Now, of course, you could ask Chris Matthews, given where he works there at MSNBC, uh, the exact same question. As, as someone who has appeared on that channel, I would guess at least 50 times in the last five years, um, I'm pretty confident the only pro-life person on the air there when I'm on the air is me. Okay, so, um, I mean, I, I appreciate Chris Matthews committing what looks like actual journalism there for a moment, but, I mean, the same question could be asked of him where he works. With, here's what this tells me. I, I want to believe this is an earnest soul-searching of and, and sudden re realization that professionalism is okay and, and actually required. I have a sneaking suspicion, forgive me, and my, and, and my, you know, my total depravity, uh, Aaron, that I abide by at all times, my mantra. Mm -hmm. I have a sneaking suspicion this is crap. We're going to win this thing, and our gal is going to go in there with the lowest approval rating of all time. And, and so we've got to begin this process of... of looking like we care what other people think, of, of sounding like we want to represent uh, all of America. I think it's worse than that. I think he's just trolling us. Oh, well, that's possible, too. Of course. I agree that's possible. Todd, you, what do you think? Do you think, do you think this is just a sudden, a sudden you know, uh, rash of conscience, or do you think this is preemptive politiz uh, politization for next year? No, you know, every once in a while, uh, those folks at the register... Uh, in journalism, excuse me, uh, decide to pull the curtain back and allow you to take a peek at how things really are. They, they, they stop with the uh, the games and just tell you, yeah, you know what, that we really have no uh, diversity here whatsoever. That word is meaningless to us. So that's all I, I think this is. This is just a moment of uh, vomiting it out the truth, and then they'll go back to uh, doing their duty as propagandists. Okay. 
More colleges around the country are launching quote-unquote inclusive language campaigns that encourage students to avoid everyday words and phrases that could possibly offend someone somewhere. Hey guys, mankind, and man-made are just a few of the terms now frowned upon. The University of Northern Colorado has also jumped on the inclusive language bandwagon. But at Greeley Colorado University, there's an extra wrinkle. In at least five classes uh, in the last year, new ultra-inclusive lexicon wasn't optional. It was required. How inclusive is Northern Colorado? What if I wanted to be Southern? What if I wanted to be Eastern Colorado, Western Colorado? What, Todd, if I wanted to be non-directional Colorado? This is where your Rosa Parks macho kicks in. No, absolutely not. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Application for your foundation. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Salem Radio Network. This is the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. David A.R. White joins us. He is a founding partner for Pure Flix Entertainment, and uh, a lot of you will know him as the campus pastor in uh, one of the most profitable series of movies ever. I think God's Not Dead, the first film, I think it ranks somewhere in the top five or seven all time in Hollywood films in terms of what it took to make and then the profit margin at the box office. So when you talk about going into the lion's den and engaging the culture with a biblical worldview, which is something we're all about here on this show, I mean, this 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 guy has been a part of an effort that has succeeded at a very high level. And we want to welcome him to the Steve Day Show here tonight. David, uh, I'm a fan of a lot of your work. I uh, think, and and only reason I'm not saying all your work because I'm sure somewhere I'd find something I didn't like. I just can't think of it yet, so I'm going to put that qualifier <laughs> out there. Thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, let me ask a very simplistic question that I, I'm guessing you get a lot, and I know if I don't ask this, several people are going to ask me if I know the answer to this after you get off the air. So let me just throw this out there: How'd you get started in this? How would a believer get? to do some of the stuff that you now get to do. Where did this all begin? Well, you know, I, I, I remember sitting out in the middle of a wheat field um, and I on a tractor and I in, in a little town outside of Dodge City, Kansas. And I grew up as a Mennonite, um, which if you know anything about the Mennonites, the Mennonites make the Mormons look like a pack of hell's angels. Uh, I grew up conservative. And, but I had this dream and I couldn't let this dream go to go into the entertainment industry. And, uh, I was like the last person on the planet that probably should have gone into the entertainment industry. Given my background, I saw one movie in the theater the first 18 years of my life. Um, but that's what this book is about. It's all about chasing your God given dreams. How do you take that writing on your wall, uh, that is in your heart and, and put it on the writing on the wall and live out your passion in an actual day to day world. The the main title of the book is Between Heaven and Hollywood. And you know, one of the one of the challenges that I have trying to take, you know, people have asked me, what is my number one career goal? And my number one career goal is I want to do whatever I can do with the talent God has given me and the platform that we have to to make a biblical worldview mainstream in America again. 
Because I'm a big believer in the Charles Spurgeon line, you know, just simply let the line out of its cage. It will defend itself just fine. And, and now, there, but there's a there's a lot of space between heaven and Hollywood, or heaven and mainstream media where I work, and and sometimes I think what becomes dispiriting is the friendly fire you take from the people whose worldview you're trying to advance, whose values you're trying to stand for in this in this public sector, who are like, well, that was a little too edgy. Well, we probably shouldn't have gone there. We probably shouldn't have done that. Now, I would guess a kid who grew up Mennonite, you've got all these hangups you've had to deal with, right? So, how have you done it? How have you managed it? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's no doubt. I mean, I, you know, massive conservative uh, growing up. I mean, I went to Moody Bible Institute and I had to call my dad after one year where my entire family had gone, graduated, met their significant others and tell my father that I want to leave Bible school and I want to go to Hollywood to be an actor. So I didn't go over very, you know, but my father said, as long as you serve the Lord and whatever you do and keep him first and foremost, then we support you in that. And I think that's where really where it comes down to is who are you serving? Who are you trying to to impress? You know, you can't, you know, Jesus talks about in the Bible all the time that you can't be on two sides of the fence. Like, you have to choose who your master is. And for us, I, you know, I landed in the, the mainstream entertainment industry right after I got here. I was 19 years old, and I, within six months I was on a hit show called Evening Shade with Burt Reynolds. And I was on the show for almost four years and did a bunch of TV and mainstream stuff until I finally started going down, really wanted to further the faith genre and and build that out um, uh, to be more relevant. You know, we live in a sight and sound generation. Our culture is impacted by media. And so how do we we use the gifts and the talents that God has given us and then to expand out what you're talking about? And that's that's a big question. Hmm. All right. Speaking of big questions, David, I've got a big one for you when we come back, because whenever you're going to go into an arena that is dominated by a worldly materialistic worldview there's there's going to be struggles in knowing when am i engaging them and when are they engaging me when, when am i impacting them and when are they impacting me and we'll talk about that when we come back here in a few minutes with david a.r white uh, he is the founding partner of pure flicks and they are on a roll in hollywood producing faith-based films over the past couple of years Check out his brand new book, Between Heaven and Hollywood, Chasing Your God-Given Dream. More with David in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Reminding you that Almighty God is always a majority. This is Steve Dace. David A.R. White is our guest, founding partner of Pure Flix Entertainment, about his new book, Between Heaven and Hollywood, Chasing Your God-Given Dream. Here's another big question. How do we know when, we are, when we're serving in these sorts of environments? I would make the case education and popular culture are the two most influential um, idea centers in in America today, and they're two, frankly, the two of the most paganized, frankly. So when when we go in there as believers, David, how do we know that we are 
um, that, that we are, you know, serving the right master, uh, that we're Daniels and, and, and not sycophants, that we're not becoming like that, which claim to, which we claim to oppose and then justifying it because, well, you know, this place would be even darker if I wasn't here. You understand what I'm kind of trying to, trying to get at? Yeah, sure. I mean, those things are, you know, those are hard questions that I think even, you know, being here and, and being in the acting world and, and that kind of thing, you know, because always the scripts come in and it's like, well, how do I know if I'm supposed to be doing this or doing that? I mean, I get that question all the time. And I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that other than, other than who, you know, you wake up in the morning and you say, you get on your hands and your knees and you say, Lord, take the, the gifts you know, Matthew 12 talks about we all have different gifts according to the measure given to each and every one of us. Take those gifts. Be excellent at what you do. And then let the Lord lead you uh, to where you're supposed to go. Um, uh, and it's hard. It's, there's no doubt about it. But, I, but again, I keep coming back to this whole idea about dreams. What's inside your heart? Where has God put that? Um, you know, how do you know if a dream is from God or if it's just a self-motivating dream? It's kind of kind of wrapped up in that. And one of the one of the ways I'd say is that it has to be is that dream bigger than you hmm. to start with? Can you accomplish that dream by yourself? Because if you can, I, I think there's a good chance that if you can't, let's just say this: I think there's a good chance that it's from the Lord. If you can't accomplish it by yourself, but you can't let that thing go, that thing keeps harnessing around you, you know, and bobbing its head to the surface of your heart, just clamoring for your mind's attention, and you can't let the thing go. Then there's a good chance that it's from God, and you're supposed to go out and do that. I remember about uh, a little more than a decade ago when Mel Gibson put a lot of his own money on the line to release The Passion, uh, distributed it himself, and took a huge risk on it and made, uh, I mean, he printed money. That's also one of the most profitable movies of all time. And a lot of us out here in the cheap seats, David, thought after that came out that we would see production assistants at every major Hollywood studio combing through the scriptures. Uh, to try, particularly the Old Testament, because then you get you can get Christians, Jews, Muslims, and people from various faiths who adhere to some of those uh, to some of those stories and, and honor them to show up. So that cast an even wider net that they would be combing through the scriptures, looking for movie scripts uh, for big budget productions that were faithful to the source material. And yet we didn't see that. And now you know we're, we're seeing this uh, this uh, this rash of movies: God's Not Dead, God's Not Dead Two, that you've been a part of, War Room last year, for example. That that are now being produced by actual believers at a high level and are also making huge money. So are, are, are the studio, are the major studios getting wind of this yet or not? Or is it just a matter of, it doesn't matter how much gold is in them, their hills, they don't want to make these movies. It kind of comes and goes. Um, after the passion all over Hollywood studios started opening up faith brands and labels. Uh, because they, they they started to realize, oh yeah, there's 150 million people that go to church once a month, and they'd probably like to see something that honors their worldview. And so they started to try to, to work in that, and then they kind of went away from it. Um, you know, I think the more and more they realize, well, they A, don't either understand the marketplace, or B, they don't really have a passion to do it. And so they let it go. And then the blind side comes up and they, we start the whole process all over again. Mm -hmm. We have meetings all over town, you know, with all these different studios saying, well, we want to capitalize on that. We want part of that. Um, and then it would go away again. And so the thing that we found obviously with in 2014, when God's not dead came out and son of God and, and, um, and the heaven is for real, 
is that those combined did you know over 250 million in the in box office, and they were all small movies. And then Hollywood, I think they 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 all of a sudden branded it the year of the Bible because they couldn't let that thing go. In fact, the odd thing was that we had, we had gotten word of, and several people had, had mentioned this to us, is that in in the biggest studio, you know, in the biggest agencies like William Morris and CAA, they have their war room where they sit around. Not that they don't pray at that war room, <laughs> but they, uh, they, they pray, P-R-E-Y. They do a different kind of pray. Exactly. Yeah. And they and they all like it, for us, it was like, how in the world did we become like Pure Flix? How did Pure Flix have this little movie and how did they do it? How did it become the number one independent movie of 2014? Um, and what is God's Not Dead? And it became this, you know, this thing that haunted them, and I think uh, that caused a lot of questions. And again, everybody opened a, a faith, faith label. And we've been seeing more, I think, faith movies than we did in the early 2000s. Um, but again, I still don't—I'm I'm a little unsure. I'd like to believe that it will continue on and that certainly we've, we've created enough awareness that, that people are hungry for this kind of content. We have studios calling us where they created a faith-based movie, and then they realize, and they're like, you know what, I, we don't actually know what to do with this because, you know, we're in this field over here, um, and you guys, will you take this movie out? Will you, you know, can you do it? Because we don't really know what we're doing. So that's a good sign when they realize, when they actually, you know, are able to admit that they don't, that they don't understand this audience. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Got about 30 seconds, David. What encouragement would you give to somebody who's listening right now and, and wants to follow in your footsteps? What would you say to them? Well, first first of all, my my uh, my whole journey wasn't an easy one. It was up, down, up, down, all kinds of stuff, you know. And I think that's the way it is in everybody's life. And I love this quote, a dream deferred is not a dream denied, for God can bless you with a, a dream bigger than the one that you had for yourself. He did it for me and he can also do it for you. And I just want to encourage people, hopefully in this book that, it, that people are able to walk away um, and just take a look at their, the dreams that are inside of them. Don't give up on them and, um, and know that, that God is faithful in the little things in our lives. And he, if you live God's dream for you, then you will not fail. Between Heaven and Hollywood, Chasing Your God-Given Dream. David A.R. White uh, is the author. It's his story. And uh, we appreciate your ability to tell stories on the uh, on the big screen as well, David. Thanks for joining us tonight, brother. God bless you. Uh, thanks so much. Take care. You're listening to Steve Dace. We're not saying that God is on our side. We're just trying to get on his. This is Steve Dace. So we've come to the end of tonight's show. I, Instead of asking you guys, what did you learn tonight through the program? I, I'd kind of like to ask you, what did you learn from the conversation we just had with David A.R. White, who is one of the founders of Pure Flix and... Him and his team, uh, they are on quite a roll uh, in Hollywood over the last couple of years with the films they've produced. So, so what did you learn from the conversation we just had with him, Todd? Well, I had no idea about his uh, Mennonite upbringing. You need to have 
a story that you are willing to tell as a filmmaker about yourself and tell well. If you're going to be successful, you just need to be captivating in that way. You just can't be the guy and the name behind the camera. You can get you know, somewhere with that. But in order to truly be salt and light in the culture, you need to go out there. And people want to hear what you have to say other than the films you're just producing because if they like that, it's it, it will keep uh, refilling itself. Then they'll want to go see the movie you make. And then you're talking about that and they learn more about you. That uh, th- That's why there's trust, you know, bankability with certain actors. I mean, it doesn't matter what Tom Hanks is making or Denzel Washington. A lot of people know Denzel Washington is probably one of the most well-known a-list actors that is a Christian, it, yet you, you'll go see, everybody will go see anything that he's in, and he's respected. And he will talk outwardly about uh, his work with the Boys and Girls Club and that he wanted to be a preacher one day. Well, you got to get to the point where your story is that compelling, and you don't sound formulaic. You don't sound paint by numbers. So I was interested on that level. Aaron. I, I think it's nothing short of a miracle that even even now at the state our culture is in. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of people who culturally identify as Christians. I think it's still nothing short of a miracle that in this culture, a an organization can start in Hollywood and make movies that are extremely successful. Now, uh, that I, I think just the way and the um, the trajectory that the Christian movie industry or movies that happen to be Christian industry is on right now, I think it will continue to get better and better and reach a, a broader audience than just the church and just trying to um, in, encourage the church. I think that's a very good sign. But as I said, in a place like Hollywood, in a culture like America's, the fact that these movies can still be successful is uh, another sign. Uh, I, I think one sign, maybe, of hope. When I knew they got it right in God's Not Dead, and in fact, it choked me up when I saw that they did this, is it was one of one of the first well-done Christian movies that, that resisted the temptation to wrap everything up into a satisfying conclusion. And when Dean Cain's character contemplates his fate his eternal fate for a few minutes and then just drives off into the into the materialistic life that he's most comfortable with that's when i thought that they nailed it which is don't be afraid of telling the truth about the human condition because i think that only reinforces the ultimate truth of the of the good news you're trying to convey when they're contrasted together john 3:17 You're listening to Steve Dace.